If I could start this afternoon by telling you about three inspiring Christian ladies. The first is on your handouts, actually. You can see a lady called Hei Wu. Hei Wu was a North Korean who escaped across the northern border into China and in China came across Christians and became a Christian. She professed faith in Jesus. Sadly, whilst in China, she was captured by the North Korean secret police, repatriated and thrown into prison. But her Christian faith was living and active inside of her. And though if you listen to the stories of mental and physical abuse from her prison days, stories that would make you feel sick to the pit of your stomach, the defining feature of Heiwu's time in prison was that in one of the darkest places on earth, she was determined to shine the light of Jesus. And so she set up a secret church. She had to do it in a place so putrid that even the guards wouldn't go there. So week by week, fellow prisoners gathered in the toilets to have a church service. She was willing to risk everything for the privilege of knowing Jesus, of being in a relationship with him. Here's a second lady. I, when Emma and I were working in Kenya, I worked in the RE department with a lady called Esther. Uh, she's one of those people, you know people who are so nice they make you feel guilty. She was just so wonderful in everything that she did. And one of the things she did without really telling anyone was that most mornings during the week she would get up at 5.30 in the morning uh, she would leave our site and go to the local village and run a be- breakfast club for about 300 5 to 11-year-old children in the village. Most mornings she would do that and she would turn up with a smile on her face. Here's a third. We're here today to celebrate Jen. And many of you will know her as a ray of sunshine, won't you? You will know her as someone whose life has been so changed by Jesus that she can't help but impact your life. But as we'll hear in a little while, as Jem talks about what God has done in her life, Jem's life hasn't been easy. She hasn't lived this life without troubles. And yet through the struggles, and particularly the struggles with depression and other mental health, Jem is at this point this afternoon where she wants to testify that she has tasted and seen that God is good. Three inspiring ladies. And you may think as we listen to those stories, well, what on earth gives with those stories? What, what keeps those people going? What enables them to live out their lives in such a way? Here's something that joins these three ladies together. Hey Wu and Esther and Jem. They have seen this. That for all the mess of this life, we have a hope beyond this life. They've seen that God himself has entered this world in all its brokenness. And he's entered it in order to redeem it. And life isn't easy, but for all the struggles and challenges and sadness that life throws at us. Christians have a living hope. A hope that means even when we experience sorrow, 
We know that God is working things for our good. Because he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to live a life that we couldn't live. Experiencing our pain and sorrow. To die a death that we deserve to die. And then to bankrupt death and to walk out of the tomb. The Lord Jesus Christ offers forgiveness to anyone. And I mean anyone who comes to him and asks for forgiveness. And so this afternoon, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that passage that was read to us. It comes in the middle of a letter, as I said, written by one of Jesus' closest friends. And here's what Peter is saying to the readers then, but also to Christians today. And if you're not a Christian this afternoon, thank you so much for coming. I hope that you can listen in and see what it is that shapes Jem's life. Because here's what Peter says. Being a Christian isn't easy. If you want to become a Christian, don't think it's going to be a bed of roses. It doesn't make you immune from life's hardships, but it gives you a living hope that animates you, that drives you forward to make sacrifices for Jesus. Because knowing Jesus is always worth it, no matter the pain and suffering and hardships we experience. But again, the question, how? How can you live like that? How can you live through life's pain and sadness with a smile on your face? Well, here's what Peter says. Did you notice it? Verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Peter says the way you keep going is by fixing your eyes on the horizon, looking at, thinking about, meditating on that living hope. The older translations describe it like this. They say, Peter says, what you need to do is gird up the loins of your mind. It sounds a bit strange, but in those days, uh, particularly the gentlemen around Turkey would have looked remarkable. These free-flowing garments were so graceful and dignified. But if you ever wanted to achieve anything or to get anywhere quickly, it was a near impossibility. So what you had to do is to gather up your robes and tuck them into your belt out of the way so that you could move unhindered and move quickly to your destination. So what's Peter saying? Remove all the distractions of life. And turn your eyes and fix your gaze on that living hope that Christians have. Now here's a thing that I think we do. We think that means we need to think about thinking about the future. Come up with all these strategies about how we're going to think about thinking about the future. You may or may not know, it's 224 days to Christmas. Um, We're excited. My little girl, Millie, who's four, is very excited. This Christmas was lovely because it was the first time she was, she was really just couldn't wait for it to happen. She knew what it was like from what we told her and from kind of vague memories. And she was just so excited. Now, what Millie didn't do is come in in the morning and say, Daddy, I am girding up the loins of my mind and thinking about Christmas. No, she, she would come in rushing in and she'd say, it's today the day. When am I going to get to open these presents? Can, can we put fairy lights up? She was just thinking about 
the day. She wasn't worrying about how she was going to G herself up for it. She just thought about it and got so overwhelmingly excited that we couldn't wait for it to be over. <laughs> no, that's not true. But here's the thing. Peter is saying, this is how Christians keep going in the Christian life. They think about again and again and again. They think about their living hope. So let me do that for you. Here's how the Bible describes the Christian's future hope. It says, we are waiting for a land flowing with milk and honey. A land where death will be swallowed up forever. And in this land, the peace will be so radical that even the wolf will lie down next to the lamb and the lamb won't be terrified. There won't be any sound of tears in this new land that we're waiting for. And the reason that will be the case is because God himself will stoop down and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Peter is saying, imagine that day, you're sitting in your mansions that God has prepared for you. And as you're sitting there, the windows are open and you can hear the sounds of children playing in the streets. The sounds of children that you've lost. And you will look out and you will smile as you see the goodness of God in their lives, in keeping them for that time. You see, the Bible paints such a picture, and when you read what the Bible writers say about the future, it's as if they can't get their words out. They can't quite believe how good it is. So the Apostle Paul can say, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I said it last week. If you're a Christian this evening, you are the luckiest person in the world. Because... The future that is waiting for you. It would be like just a a release. You know, all that tension in your shoulders will just undo. The knots in your back and all those things that you're worrying will just wash off you. And you will see Jesus face to face. That's how you keep going as a Christian. That's how you can be prepared to give up everything for Jesus. Because that is what he is preparing for you. A world where death cannot hurt us, guilt cannot hold us, failure will not define us, and God's love will shape us from now until eternity. You see, that's how we keep going. That's how Esther and Hewu and Jem keep going, because God is waiting for us, preparing a place for us. And so Peter says, think about it. Reflect on it, delight in it, rejoice in it. And yet, one of the things I want us to see now this afternoon is that that future bleeds into the present as we live lives of sacrificial service to God. As we begin to live those lives now, that living hope becomes more and more a reality to us. But it's not easy. Don't imagine just a smiling Jesus who gives us everything but calls us to nothing. No, Peter says you have a living hope. And therefore, if Christianity is going to mean anything to you, it must mean everything. If Christianity is going to mean anything to you, it must mean everything. And here's four ways 
that that living hope changes who we are now. Four things that I want us to think about this afternoon. Peter is saying Christians should reflect, remember, love and learn. Four things. Firstly this, we need to reflect. He says in verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You see, Peter is writing to Christians who've been scattered. They are exiles in the places they're living. And Peter is saying, you must live a distinctively different life. Yes, we are in the world, but your life is shaped by God, not by the desires of women and men. So J.B. Phillips can say, don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. Because instead of that, we are to reflect Did you notice that verse 15? Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Jem has been adopted into God's family. Now one of the things you know about families is the greatest families that you see begin to look more and more like each other. They reflect each other's characteristics. They look like each other and they celebrate the life that they have together. And that's the case for us. We have been drawn into God's family. And Peter says, the more you get to know him, the more you should look like him. Be holy because I am holy. That's a quote from Leviticus 19. And you might think, well, Christianity is all just about a bit of morality and a bit of religion. You know, they're really strict on some things and they come and do a bit of religious stuff. And that's what it looks like to be like God. But if you go back to Leviticus 19, you see this. To be holy isn't actually to be religious or to be moral. To be holy is to live all of your life shaped by God's character. So Leviticus 19 has a lot to say about our family life. It has a lot to say about farmers And how farmers should farm the fields around them. Leviticus 19 says, being holy is being a good member of the neighbourhood watch squad. Whatever it is, it's an all-encompassing view of looking like God in every area of our lives. And as we saw last week, God, Peter isn't calling Christians to withdraw from the world so that they're not contaminated by it. No, Peter is saying engage with the world in such a way that you shine Jesus' light into it. We're to reflect God's likeness. That's what it means to be a Christian. We have been adopted into God's family and so we look like him to the world around us. Now, before we move on, just notice, God, uh, Peter doesn't say, God doesn't say in Leviticus 19, be moral as I am moral. That's what we think Christianity is, you know, a little bit of morality. But he says, no, be holy as I am holy. And you say, well, what's the difference? Here's the thing. The difference between morality and holiness is the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. They were moral. He was holy. The moral person abstains from wrong actions. The holy person hates the very thought of them. The moral person is driven by what people perceive them to be. The holy person is committed to what God wants them to be. The moral person keeps a meticulous record of all their rights, expecting that by them they receive God's favour. The holy person knows that everything they have is a gift of God's grace. And so they both are relaxed 
and in awe. The moral person lives by their own definition of what is right and wrong, and they love to impose that definition on other people. The holy person allows the Bible to direct their life, and when it does, they love their neighbours as themselves. You see, the New Testament tells us this. The gospel of transformation is always, always far more powerful than the religion of prohibition. The gospel of transformation is always more powerful than the religion of prohibition. So be holy as God is holy. Reflect God's character. Secondly, remember. Remember, verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And you think, hang on a second. Sounds a bit weird. Be afraid. Live out your time in reverent fear. What's going on there? Is it like, don't hurt me, God? I'm terrified of of what you're doing. No. This word, really the translation just can't capture what's going on as as the Bible writers use the word fear. Here's a definition I found helpful. And I think 1 Peter, this section shows us this. The fear of the Lord means that God's frown is your greatest dread and his smile is your greatest delight. You see, Peter's saying here in verse 17, look, God may be your father, but that doesn't mean he has lower standards for Christians. Just because we're in God's family doesn't mean that we have diplomatic immunity. God sees all things. He knows all things. The rest of this letter is going to have some very challenging things for us as a church to learn. And Peter's saying here at the outset, you can't pull the wool over God's eyes. You can't do it. Remember that. In the time of the Reformation, they had a a motto for their lives. In Latin, it's Coram Deo. It means before the face of God. We need to remember that every moment of our life is lived out in front of God's face. That's humbling, isn't it? And so we need to create a kind of God consciousness in everything we do, where we realise that he sees all things. He knows all things. And you think, well, that sounds like too much of an ask, doesn't it? But Peter tells us God calls us to that. He wants you in his family. He wants you. He loves you. And so when you know that, you can live in front of him because you know that the thing that you need most is his smile and the thing that he longs to give you more than anything is his smile. Because verse 18, you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. One of the things that keeps Christians going is the good news of Christianity is the greatest antidote to insecurity. Do you feel insecure? I feel insecure so often in my life. We fall into the trap of thinking, God could never love me. If he really knew everything I did, he could surely never love me. Or we worry that we've stepped beyond the pale and there's no way back. And Peter says, remember. 
Remember the lengths that God went to. God saw us at our worst and he gave us his best. He saw us at our worst and he gave us his best. And so Peter says, remember the precious blood of Jesus. Not precious in the way we use it with children, cute or sweet, but there is nothing more valuable in the world. God could have given you no more than he did because the Lord Jesus spilt his precious blood, more precious than gold or silver. Can I tell you, as a Christian, my life is full of questions. As I look through my life, I'm constantly asking this question, why? But there's one question that rises to the top again and again and again, and it's this, why? Why, O Lord, such love to me? Why? Why, Lord, would you love me? In all my mess and brokenness and failure, why would you look at me and do that for me? That's how we keep going as Christians. He could not love you any more than he does. Why, O Lord, such love to me? So we reflect We remember, we love. Verse 22, now that you've purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Peter said, Trinity Church, Oxford, and friends, how do we keep going as Christians? Look around you and love those people. Because that love is infectious and captivating and will drive people to keep going as Christians. Notice it's a sincere love. It's a love freed from hypocrisy. It's not two-faced, it's genuine. And that's a challenge for us because if you're not a Christian, Jesus, Jesus tells Christians this. He says, the way... Those who aren't Christians can judge a church is by how they love each other. So if if you're not a Christian, you can look at us and the measure of the work that God has done in our lives is seen in the way we love each other. What does it look like? Beginning of chapter two, therefore rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, envy and slander of every kind. This is the thing that Christianity should do to us. It should free us from a sense of competitiveness. Now, I know some of your Oxford students, life is driven by competitiveness, isn't it? But isn't that true in the church? Just wanting to look a bit better than the people around us. And the precious blood of Jesus takes us and humbles us. We don't need to slander people. We don't need to get a foot up. We don't need to make ourselves look more impressive. We are as loved as we could be. And finally, how do Christians keep going? They learn. We reflect God's character. We remember. We remember how much he loved us. We love one another and we learn. Because all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Those magnificent buildings 
that many of you walk past every day, the Rad Camp, the Bodleian Library, will crumble. They will come to the ground. Every human institution, every human being will fade and perish. And when all is said and done, the words of God contained in the Bible will still be there. They've been there for thousands of years already. And even tonight we read them and think, God wrote those words 2,000 years ago and they speak directly to me. Because it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Peter said to Jesus, to whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we open up our Bibles and we read of eternal life. So to be a Christian is to daily learn. Like newborn babies, we crave pure spiritual milk so that by it we may grow up in our salvation. You know, for the baby, milk is not an optional extra. It's what keeps it alive. For a Christian, a diet of God's word is what's going to keep you alive. Now, don't mishear me. I think most Christians suffer with what we call quiet time guilt. And so we pretend that our quiet time is better than it actually is because we feel so guilty. I'm not doing enough. But do you see the the point of what what Peter's saying? He describes the word of God as a seed. It's the thing that brings new life, not our effort, not our Bible reading plan or our strategy. As we get the word of God into our hearts, even if it's just a verse, it grows, it brings new life. What did you have to do with your... I won't ask that question. Once you were an embryo in the womb, what did you do? What did you do to bring yourself to birth? Nothing. And that's the point Peter's making. Bring the word of God into your life and through the word of God new life will come. Not through your strategies or through your efforts. Stop feeling guilty and just fill yourself with... The word of God. So here's what I'm saying this afternoon. How do we keep going as Christians when we see Jem get baptised and we celebrate what God has done in her life? This is what we do to, to keep living that life. We reflect God's character. We enter into reverent fear. We esteem Jesus' death above all. We engage wholeheartedly in Christian community and we love the Bible. And if you're not a Christian here this evening, that might sound a bit intense. And I'm sure you're thinking, wow, I just don't know what to make of this. It just sounds like such a radical commitment. Can I do this? Can I say, please, don't judge Christianity based on me or what you see in other people. Look at Jesus. And can I tell you, when you look at Jesus, the longer you look at him, he becomes the fairest of 10,000. He becomes more lovely than anything this world has to offer. And as you gaze at him, you realise that he has gone before us to prepare that living hope for us. And so I want to finish with this. Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Think about the future. So I want to do a little thought experiment. I've done it before, actually. I want us to imagine the future. And imagine what it could be like. I'm I'm taking biblical images here and trying to... Bring it down to where we are. 
And here's the thing I want us to think about, because Peter says that living hope is in the future, but it bleeds into the present. So as I paint my picture for you, think about this. If we, Trinity Church Oxford, reflect, remember, love and learn, how much of my painting could be true now? So here it is. I imagine a world where people from different races would treasure differences in others as attractive, important and complementary. I imagine a world where marriages are strong and children are secure. I imagine a world where there are no unwanted children and all children are able to flourish with the unique gifts God has given them. I imagine a world without plastic in the ocean, where the water is always pure and clean and doesn't have the chemicals that Thames water put into mine. I imagine a world where city centres are free from graffiti and the countryside is a place of calm and tranquility. I imagine a world where those in power speak the truth and make decisions for the good of all. A world where newspapers will be filled with stories of heroism, moral beauty and compelling... I've lost my place. Compelling sports fixtures. Sports fixtures that are unhindered by bad refereeing decisions. I imagine a world where people celebrate other, others' promotions, go to work with a smile on their faces and sleep peacefully every night with their doors unlocked. I imagine a world where women can walk home safely at night with not a fear in their heart. I imagine a world where army bases are converted into theme parks, prisons converted into hotels and hospitals converted into spas. Here's a radical thought. I imagine a world where every building that looks like a church actually is a church and is packed to the rafters with people who love Jesus. I imagine a world without social distancing, a world without fearful unknowns, a world where a cough is only ever to clear your throat, where our feet don't smell of cheese and where you never worry about what a test result is going to say. I imagine a world where people never forget or exhibit the ravaging effects of old age. I imagine a world with no cancer. I imagine a world that is cascading with the knowledge of God, a world where we see, recognize and celebrate God's beauty at every corner. I imagine a world where we worship God, undistracted, not thinking about what's next or worrying about the tech or the quality of the service, but completely undistracted, captivated by the mystery of God's holiness and grace. I imagine a world where everywhere you look, you see people reflecting the light of God's presence. A world where people in their own accents, with their own unique gifts, praise God in a way that builds like a wave of passion that is never spent. And I can't wait for that world. Can you? Now I know some of those things are impossible now. Because we live in this world of sin and sickness and sadness and death. And before you say, well, James, that's just you imagining. Let me read you as we close. These words from Isaiah 11. This is God speaking. The God who spoke all things into existence says, this is what is going to happen. I promise you. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hands into the viper's nest. 
They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How on earth can we not keep going? Do you know what I mean? How on earth can you not keep going when that is what's waiting for us? I can't wait. And can I say as I close, I want to see everyone's face that I see tonight there. Please. You see, being a Christian is hard, but there is nothing better than being a Christian. What other... Nothing offers that, does it? But the God who made all things says, this is your future if you would only trust in Jesus and bring your mess to him and lean on him. That's what we're going to celebrate as Jem gets baptised. She has a living hope that is building and building and building and changing her even now. So we're going to get ready for, to do that. What we're going to do in a, in a second is just spend a bit of time in prayer. We'll confess our sins. And then once we've confessed our sins, we'll say a prayer together. The band are going to lead us in a wonderful old hymn, which reminds us, helps us remember the wondrous cross on which Jesus died. So I'm going to pause for a little bit, just give you a, some space in your hearts. And then I'll lead us in this prayer before we sing together. Let's close.